Hi there, I'm Lori Hellman, a mom to an incredible young adult son on the autism spectrum. My goal when creating the Living the Sky Life podcast three years ago was that the content of each episode bring hope, connection, and some valuable takeaways to each listener. The special needs parenting village is large, so you should never feel like you have to travel this journey alone. If you haven't already, please connect with me through my website, Facebook page, or Instagram account. And let's keep the conversation going after each episode airs. If you are enjoying the podcast and are listening on Apple iTunes, please leave a rating and written review and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for tuning in and subscribing to season three of Living the Sky Life. Welcome back to another episode of Living the Sky Life. You know, I have to say I am extremely fortunate and grateful when I encounter parents who have adult children on the spectrum because, as I've always said, I will take any advice, tips, um, just any information I can get as I am now in the adult years with my son, Skylar. So when Joanne Crawford, who is my guest today, reached out to me about her experience having an um, adult autistic son, Um, I jumped at the chance to sit down and talk to her. So my guest today, Joanne, is a writer, autism advocate, and mother of an adult son with severe autism. Her memoir, called Choices, One Mother's Determined Search for the Supports to Meet the Needs of Her Aging Autistic Son, details her journey from her son's infancy to adulthood. Today, Joanne continues to work with special needs students in the public school system and lives in her Habitat for Humanity home on Cape Cod. So please enjoy my conversation with Joanne as we discuss group homes, residential living, and all things future planning for our adult sons on the spectrum. So welcome back to another episode of Living the Sky Life. My guest today is Joanne Crawford. Um, We actually have a mutual friend, a mutual author friend, um, and so we uh, found our way to each other. So I'm really excited to talk to Joanne about her son and her book and all the things. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I, I prefaced your son, um, and I know you have an adult son who is on the spectrum and he is 29. Is that correct? He just turned 29. Oh my goodness. I'm 10 years behind you, <laughs> but it still seems like there's a lot that goes on in the um, adult phase, but um, you know, rather than taking you all the way back to diagnosis day, which I'm sure you could talk about um, endlessly, is there something that you want to kind of share with us about your son just in general and his development over the years and things that you've learned along the way with autism? Oh, such a range of things. <laughs> I bet. Well, and on many levels, I mean, <clears throat> In the bigger picture, you know, I've learned to ask for help. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I've learned acceptance, um, unconditional love, persistence, <laughs> consistency, you know, all these things. Um, and of course, just the basic training of autism 101. Yes. You know, and I learned as he learned. And I learned through the educators about the PET system, you know, the picture exchange system. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned some sign language along the way. I learned how to be with my own son. I learned what what ABA was. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and and I would sit at these IEP meetings and they would talk in their therapist language or their education language. And I would say, that's very nice, but I have no idea what you're talking about. And this is how I learned. And <clears throat> so um, I know when I talk to people, I make sure that I'm speaking in a way that they understand. And if they don't yeah. understand, I take the time to explain. Yeah, yeah. that's so, super important. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's taught me to be patient. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I say the same and I'm still learning. I mean, I think I'm a little better, but that is one thing that you have to let go of is being impatient because they'll, they'll definitely test your, your limits. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, there's a piece in the book I write about uh, autism being the teacher mm -hmm. and, um, because, you know, my experience, you know, my son is primarily nonverbal. Um, and so he's, he's acting out all the time. And so he was running and kicking and biting and, and clawing. Um, and, you know, you're, you have to always be at the ready and you have to figure out, well, what triggered this, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just an ongoing, constant learning process. And it changes as they get older. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to say it does yeah <laughs> in some ways good in some ways it's just another challenge we have to learn I think exactly. you know one of the things with um you know I appreciate so much talking to parents that have um younger adults um or adults on the spectrum is that you know if you think back even when Skylar was diagnosed diagnosed 10 years behind you guys um or so it it seems like every bit of knowledge that we've obtained throughout the years about ABA, about PECs, about all these things, either they were just developed and we learned about them as everybody was learning about them, but we had to do everything primarily on our own. So, you know, there wasn't, you know, we say this a lot, there wasn't social media, there wasn't a wealth of parents that are already going through it to ask questions. So, you know, we've sat at those IEP meetings where I have no idea what they're talking about either, and it might be something that's relatively new that they had heard about. Let's try this. You know, this PEC system is new or again, ABA was new. Um, so I feel like I'm still in that position now as Skylar has become an adult. I'm navigating through adult processes with no one to kind of look to, to, to tell me this is going to be easier and he can get a job or he can do this and he can do that. That still seems like a very unpaved road for us. So I know that with your book and, um, and a lot of us that have children that are older, we're trying to pave that road for the parents coming, you know, behind us. Right. So, um, and I, I, I think that's what happened to along the way. I think, mm -hmm. you know, I remember myself saying, I mean, I had two doctors, of course I had to go out and get a second opinion, <laughs> right. After the first diagnosis, because this was 1996. I had never even heard the word autism before. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, I forgot where I was going with this. Um, you were talking about the road. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. they would, I had two doctors that would, that told me, you know, your child really should be placed outplaced in yep. basically a, a residential setting. 
you know, out of your hands. At the age of what, three? At the age of three. Yeah. Just three. But Mm -hmm. then I found myself saying, well, you know, he's just seven. Let's see where we can go with this. Mm -hmm. And like you said, we learned about the therapies along the way. Let's see. And I, I mean, I searched everything. I mean, I did a lot of, as you probably did, word of mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, I sat in waiting rooms, talking to parents, um, you know, when he was in therapy, OT or speech outside of school. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is how I networked along the way. And this is how I learned and and figured out, well, what do I do? Um, And it does change Mm -hmm. over the years. But I think what happens is at a certain point, you, you, you find a place of acceptance because they plateau. Mm-hmm. And I know I see it with, I work in the middle school, so I see it with the mainstream kids. Um, just in those three years, you see where the fallout is. You see those who mature um, at the, you know, average rate. And those who are three years behind or those who plateau. Mm-hmm. And, and even though some of those special needs kids are higher functioning academically, socially they're not. Yeah. And, um, they have different needs. And so it may be that they just need a couple extra years or it may be that this is where they plateau. Yeah. And so we, you have to start making those assessments. And I would say that kicks in around 14, 13. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you make a decision. Are they moving on to the high school program? Or do I do outplacement at this point? Mm-hmm. Well, you had mentioned, um, I, I know that you work with, um, is it all special needs middle schoolers or just in general in the middle school, a little bit of neurotypical, a little bit of special needs that you, that you work with? So I've been there since 2008. I was able to work full time because my son was outplaced at the age of 15 in a residential setting. And Mm -hmm. I have worked, they have all three settings. I've worked in the severe room where there would be kids like mine. Um, And I've worked in the moderate room where there's higher functioning uh, special needs students. but they have some major behaviors, so they have to be on a behavior plan. Okay. Um, and then I've worked where I'm working right now um, with um, the, the learning disabled uh, kids. And I've, I've worked with some kids with autism in the learn, that were learning disabled, very high functioning, um, but they really needed some one-on-one help mm-hmm. here. Um, and then you let them go, hopefully. Uh, they'll be able to kind of go solo in, in seventh grade. Depends, every kid, every individual kid is different. Right. You know, they all have different diagnoses. They could have anything from a range of dyslexia, ADHD, usually a combination of things. You know, even autism, maybe. Mm-hmm. I like uh, a child with autism with a hearing disability as well. Wow. So um, everybody's different. 
Well, you mentioned that, um, it, I guess in your particular area um, in school system that there's a, more of talk of a transition plan around the age of 14, 15, and then they decide, I guess the parents and the therapists, like collectively everyone decides if um, the child will move on to high school or be placed in a um, residential school. And one of your blogs, you talked about transitions and just this whole, kind of whole concept. Right. I'm not as familiar with um, doing transition discussions that early, primarily because Skylar hasn't been in a traditional school since he was seven. Um, so our IEP, if you if you will, it's more goal setting. It looks totally different um, with him. So how does that is that part of an IEP conversation or how does, how does that work? And then what is a residential school type of a setting? Is it, is it different than a residential home? Um, I'm just not, I'm not familiar with that language. So it is not a standard discussion that is, okay. is a certain age. Um, it's usually brought up by the special needs director or the parent. Mm -hmm. most parents will not bring it up really <laughs> okay most, unless they're you know like honestly I knew that my son was not going to the high school I knew that but I thought I had a year to think about it you know so where would I place him and um and then the hormones kicked in mm-hmm um, regressions came, he was getting bigger. I had to pull him out of school. I had to homeschool him for a couple of months. And then I had an IEP meeting, an emergency IEP meeting in my kitchen. So um, it was decided at that meeting that there would be an outplacement. Um, so it was sort of done in crisis mode. Okay. Um, but, and you don't want to go there. And I yeah. know that prior to that, probably the year before the special needs director called me at home and she started asking me these questions and I knew what she was aiming for. It was outplacement. And um, because she was asking me questions, basically, you know, if I was safe and I was, oh. yeah, that's I gotta be hard, really hard. So, mm -hmm. and, and as you know, I'm a single parent. Mm -hmm. So um, it was difficult. And, and so I knew, but I wasn't ready. But autism says, no, you're ready. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and it all unfolded in a different way. Um, but yes, yeah, so my son was, the discussion was in crisis mode. But there's no reason why you can't bring it up and discuss it, even if you're just saying, okay this is the direction I plan to go in, but what about this? Would this be a plan B and how would mm -hmm. that work for us? You know, because I will tell you that that search, um, I went back, I had him back in school after Thanksgiving. He was homeschooled for two months and I went back as his ed assistant, as his one-on-one. -on -one. And me and the teacher and, and my son Ian, the three of us, would go out and visit different um, residential schools and see what was a good fit and what wasn't. And if we thought it was a good fit, they would come out and observe him at the school. And then they would tell us if it was a good fit. 
um, because you have to be accepted. And on top of it, they have to have an opening. I was going to ask about openings and like, you know, if there is a plentiful amount like that you were able to search several facilities. I mean, I can't even name one, just one in our area that we could even consider looking at, let alone availability. And I live on Cape Cod. So I Mm -hmm. live on an island. So all of these were off Cape, at least an hour to two hours off Cape. And um, it was an eight month search because once we found the place, they did not have an opening. and we waited, and right before his 15th birthday, um, there it was, the safe. Mm-hmm. How, is, he, is he thriving there? I know you said you listened to my episode with Michelle O'Reilly, um, and she kind of had a similar situation with crisis mode and having to place her son. Um, luckily for her, it was just a, a block down the road, um, but, you know, talking to her after the episode, even I've kept up with her and he is doing amazing. I mean, they toilet trained him. Um, he was 19 or 18 at the time and not toilet trained, just like Skylar. He is nonverbal. And now they've got him, you know, communicating with a PEX board and asking for his mom and different things. And he seems to be happier there. And she's the one who kind of changed my initial thoughts on all of that. I think as parents, we all say, you know, I'm going to keep my child with me as long as possible. We've heard horror stories about residential placements or group homes or things, and they just aren't cared for. And, and that's really not, I guess, fair to label them all the same way. Um, and if you do your due due diligence, like you did and research them, um, I think you can find some really strong programs, but I'd love to hear how Ian kind of acclimated to that and how you acclimated to him not being home. Cause I think that's really important for parents to get another perspective. Yeah. I talk about that in the book. Um, yes. And I say that it took him two months to adjust. It took me two years. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, probably still adjustment for you. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's been a while. So, you know, he's been in residential since 15. Um, in the school, so he had so much structure and such an intense program. It was the best thing, you know? Now he was, he was building this extended family. Now he had peers that were like him. Um, they would do all kinds of things during, you know, in addition to what was going on in the program and so as part of their program, they'll do um, daily living skills, right? They'll do cooking. They'll do, um, you know, learn how to shred paper, wipe the tables down, do recycling. Um, so they make them part of their community, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a community of people uh, just like himself. And so um, he did. He, he really... Uh, he really thrived there and still is. And I have to say that these people, I mean, I always say that autism, you know, was thrown into my life, mm-hmm. right? These people choose to work. I know, them. they're godsends. They really are. Godsends. They really are. Mm-hmm. And 
very dedicated and um, I can't say enough. I really, especially with this organization, um, they're wonderful because um, I was lucky enough to have Ian uh, placed in the adult services side of the same organization. And so um, a lot of the same familiar faces he sees in his adult services group home that he saw in his residential setting in the school. But, but yeah, he, and he does have a few words, you know, Ian does. Um, a handful that are important, like pizza. <laughs> hey, that's very important. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I would say that I know that he's safe and he's well taken care of. And I can see that he's happy. Mm-hmm. So when he comes out home on a home visit, he's not distraught. He doesn't, he wants to go back when, when the weekend's over. Did his behaviors change relatively quickly? I know quickly is a very subjective word, but, um, you know, once he became a resident there, did you see him kind of flip a switch? Cause I, I think about that with Skylar, you know, all of the behaviors that we still are seeing. And I'm just, I think to myself, is he just tired of being here? Is he just tired of the routine that we have and his dad and I taking care of him and just all of that? Is he frustrated with us? And he just wants a new setting, a new group of people. You know, I'm, I feel like sometimes I'm holding him back. Like I'm so hell bent that he is not going into a group home or residential placement or anything like that. And it may actually be the best thing for him if I can get out of the way, you know? I Well, my personal opinion is when you have a child with an adult child with high needs like that, mm-hmm. number one, it's inevitable. We're all going to age. Mm-hmm. So um, better sooner than later. Um, I just think that it's the best all around and they get acclimated. Um, I think it's harder for them to leave the home setting as they get older. Right. Right. Um, I know parents that were, were, were turning 70 and having their child still at home waiting for outplacement. And, and so the other thing is too, that I, my son, because he was in residential, he was automatically slotted in the budget for, uh, a group home like he didn't have a place to go but he, he was already in the budget for him to be in adult services and when did that transition like how how long could he stay in the <clears throat> excuse me the residential um school or the residential um facility was that just like anything else at, at 22 or whatever the age is in your state he had to transition to i guess a group home or a different facility overnight Overnight, he turns 22 on his birthday. He's out. That's the, oh God. I mean, that'll open up a whole Pandora's box of of things to talk about with you because so. And so so that even if they're in the public high school in a, in a, um, you know, special needs room. Right. They're they're out. Wow. Okay. So they come their home full time. Yeah. And so it's, what you would have to do is find a day program. Right. Which 
those are few and far between. Yeah. And yeah. so what happens is, you know, he's in a, he's in an adult group home with four under other individuals like himself, all young men. And, um, in the house, you know, this is his extended family. They all, they all have a place. They all have jobs to do. They have, they have goals. Um, you still have, I, you, you're not free of that IEP. It just is called an ISP now. <laughs> it's, it's an individual support uh, plan. Okay. And, See, I didn't know that either. Yes. And, um, and so there are goals and objectives on there, you know, but now they're mopping the floor mm -hmm. or they're whatever it is, you know, folding laundry, making the bed, whatever the job is. And they learn to do that. Um, they have him, you know, of course he has a lot of prompting and supervision, but he's helping to cook. You know, it's amazing. Um, it's just amazing. And, and then they have music and munchies during the week. I mean, yeah, it's fun for him. So, Does he have a one-on-one -on -one support? Do, I mean, are the, are the other gentlemen living with him? similar needs or are there some higher functioning? So is it a mixture or, it's and how, how does the support work? Cause that's my biggest fear is that yeah. he could might get placed, but they don't realize somebody needs to be with him at this point all the time. So, well, there is one individual with a one-on-one -on -one in the house. It depends on what the needs are. Okay. Um, and what accommodations they get, what supports they get. Um, but that has to be in their ISP. Okay. Just like an IP. So, but the uh, general ratio is three to one, um, three to five. Okay. Three to five. So um, three uh, attendants to five residents and um, round the clock. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, that's um, the hardest part is staffing. Um, you know, there might be availability in these homes, but at least what I'm hearing in the research that I'm doing to try to find something like that for Skylar in a few years is um, they just don't have the people that are willing to do the long care that they have to do because the pay is terrible. You know, I wish that they compensated these people much better than they do for the job that they, they do because it's very yes, hard. They need to respect and... Um the profession because yeah these people um it's it's a lot to ask of anyone mm -hmm. you know and they have to go through a training so so the organization my son is with is a nonprofit, and um like i said they have the school as well um i forget they must have like i don't know how many group homes maybe seven or eight now and um ian was lucky enough to get into the second one they renovated. Oh, nice. Yeah. So he was at the very beginning um, of their adult program. Lucky for him. Mm -hmm. uh, but, um, you know, I, I forget what your question was. I was going off. On it was just, you know, it was just staffing. And because, you know, even oh, here yes. for the year, all the years, I mean, Skylar's been on the waiver since he was probably eight or so. Um, it doesn't offer much. It's like 60 hours a month for respite. We have never, ever had a respite provider. 
every time we interview someone from the pick list or whatever, and they come over, they meet Skylar and they're like, yeah, I'd love to work with him. And then it's like, well, I, I can't do Saturdays and I can't do this. And I can't, it just never works out. And then they never end up doing anything. And so his hours were going to waste. So when he turned 18, the waiver allows a parent to be his respite provider, which I'm already doing anyways, because that's my job every day to take care of him. But now at least I'm getting paid the respite hours, which I in turn just give the money to him and his trust. But, you know, I mean, it just feels like we're constantly having to jump through hoops with the system to try to benefit him. But the ultimate end result is we aren't getting any help, like away from my husband and I to take care of him. The respite is supposed to give us a break, but I'm just now his respite provider on top of his mother, his tutor, his therapist, his, you know, all the things. So I just, I was hopeful that if we move wherever we go, that these group homes or residential homes, or even respite services will become more available and more people will want to do it. But we constantly hear that respite pays so little, as we talked about, that they can get a job at Amazon warehouse, making more money than they can doing the hard work. I mean, we live it. We know how hard it is. So for them to willingly want to be in this profession and then get paid peanuts to do it, I don't blame them, but the system is broken. (laughs) That's the bottom line. I think, yeah, because they're not looking at them as professional people Mm -hmm. and they're not compensating them as such. So Going back to this organization, I think if you went with a nonprofit um, or some organization, bigger organization that can pay them, yeah, and they can offer them benefits. That's not state so, run. <laughs> no, it's not state. Run. Yeah, <laughs> that's not, probably the yeah. best. Yeah, so um, you know, that's why I think it works because this is a this is a. a an organization that will provide their people um, all kinds of benefits, including mm-hmm. tuition reimbursement. So, you know, they pay them, they respect them, they get vacations. They, it's a, it's a regular job. It's not uh, a job where you're on call and you get, you know, ten dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't be. So I think that's what you need to look at. Okay. You know, uh, uh, you know, and I don't know what's available around you. I know here on Cape Cod, there's not a lot here either. Yeah. And um, back in 2011, uh, me and a handful of parents, we sat down in somebody's living room and we said, what are we going to do with our kids? And we decided to start a nonprofit to build housing for adults with autism. Yeah. And that's what we and that's what we did. But but I knew that Ian would never go there because it would be a long time before it got built and up and running properly. Um, but they, they did open their doors in 2020. Oh, that's awesome. Congrats to you guys. It yeah. seems like more and more that's what it is. Parents either developing a, a business that their children you know, can perform a task in and help for their future, or they're getting together and coming up with housing ideas, buying apartment complexes, like my last guest just talked about. And it's, it's sad that we already have so much on our plates to do, you know, for their lifetime and to care for it. And then to have to individually come up with parents coming together and 
brainstorming and building, you know, facilities and doing these things, it should be done for us. Right. Well, it should be, yes, it should be part of the healthcare system. And so mm-hmm. it goes back to, this is why I wrote the book. Yes. It kept coming up for me, you know, it shouldn't have to be this hard. You know, my son's been in the system, you know, over 20 years. And now at 22, I'm back at square one. What? That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. You know, he has this long history from preschool all the way up to 22. And now nobody's going to look at that. We need to bridge the gap between public education Mm -hmm. and adult services. And because they're two different animals, two different budgets, you know, that's where it sits. But it really needs to be changed. And this is why I, I think I told you, I sat down. I was having such a hard time with my son Ian's transition well, it was supposed to be a transition. It was just an unbelievable year of uh, uphill battle when he was moving into adult services. Um, but I sat, I, and I hadn't even reached some of, some of the points where it was really hard. So he had turned 22 in uh, March, 2015. And um, I was already distressed and I hadn't even begun. I sat down and I wrote a letter to President Obama. Mm-hmm. I told him my story. And I said, I need your help. I said, we need to have autism be a priority in healthcare, this needs to be a a national conversation. I said, and at that time, so the diagnosis was one in 68 were diagnosed, right? Yep. And at that time, there was a statistic out there that said 500,000 special needs students will age out of the public school system over the next 15 years. Mm-hmm. And yep. I said to him, where, where will they go? Who will care for them? Yep. And then I told him about the housing. And I told him that I was on a small scale trying to be part of the solution with doing my volunteer work with this nonprofit building housing for adults with autism. And so That's all I asked him. And I said, you know, one in 68 are diagnosed. That's one in 68 families with a story like mine. And now it's one in 44. It's getting worse and worse. So the numbers are not going down. Yeah. But the numbers of adults are astronomical. I think I just saw a statistic the other day um, that in 2020, there were 5.4 million adults with autism in this country, which is 2.2% of the population are adults living with autism. It can be varying severities, but I think you bring up an excellent point that the transition point at age 21, 22 in most states, there's 
only a couple of paths and neither path is strong. I have friends that have children that are 30, like your son's age. Um, and they are higher functioning and able to carry on a job, any kind of a job, but their education counselor or their, um, voc vocational, um, therapist, counselor, person that they're supposed to work with isn't doing anything for them. They still at, you know, they've been trying to work for five, 10 years and they still can't get anyone to give them any kind of a job. And then you've got our path where Skylar's never going to work because he can't speak and he, you know, can't communicate with other people very easily. So then what does he do? Live with me till I die. And then what happens to him after that? There's just no clear path. As soon as our kids turn 22, age out of everything, they're, we're just left hanging. Like it's back to diagnosis day, in my opinion. Yeah. It's just. But this goes back to my son's group home. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are giving him a life that I could never give him. Right. Yeah. They, and it'd be great if we could find those places everywhere. Right. Right. So that's the point. It's not available to everybody. Right. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Um, and there are so many parents trying to be part of the solution. Uh, there's another uh, a community out in California in Sonoma. Yep. That was built years ago um, by parents. Um, but unfortunately, for those who are at the beginning of this tsunami of, of people aging out, um, we are the ones that have to navigate and, and kind of pave the way mm -hmm. um, for others, right? And, um, and sometimes that requires, like my son, he lives two hours from here, right? Um, I know people, not personally, but I've read about people who move out of state. Yep, that's where we're headed. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> And so you, you have to research where there is availability, mm -hmm. right? Um, because you have to accommodate their needs. Yep. And we do it. And we, we change and move along the way to, to meet those needs. It's not, it's not an easy road. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. hard to, to say, because I don't mean anything derogatory by it, but Skylar's autism dictates my future as much as it does his. I'm going to have to go where he can get placed and where we can thrive as a family. And um, it's not here. We already know that it's not here. So it's, um, you're right. We have to pave the path. Is that why you, you know, you've mentioned your book a couple of times and I want to make sure that I um, talk about that because it's really important. Um, your book is called Choices. I know there's a longer title. Do you want to say the whole title so that people can find it? Well, it, that is the title choice, okay. but the, but the, the subtitle, the, the, sub, <laughs> the line fault that follows is one mother's determined search to meet her. I, I don't have it in front of me, her aging autistic son mm -hmm. to meet his needs, to support his needs. Basically. So in, and in your book, um, did it come about you writing this book? during this process of the transition and just how frustrated you were and you're highlighting some of those things, what is a, what is a key takeaway that you want from people who read your book, which I highly recommend that they, that they read your book. I did not write it as I went, but, um, 
It was after. It was once Ian had the supports and he was in the place that he needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, in 2016, I realized that I have to, I have to do something, mm -hmm. you know? And so um, I sat down and I had some, a couple of writings, you know, like I had already written um, autism, the teacher and uh, a couple of others um, just as blogs. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I actually wrote a two-page summary of what I went through for the past 20 years, right? Um, and made that a blog. And I, that was the first one I ever launched. And, um, and I got over um, 360 views. So I, mm -hmm. knew, I knew there was an audience out there and people were interested. And I thought, this is it. I have to expand it. And, um, and so that's what I did. And it took me a couple years to write. Um, so it was probably emotional too. <laughs> I know well, writing my book was emotional. So, yeah, ugh. well, so I, as I wrote it, you know, I, I put it together and I actually wrote it in pieces because really it's just snapshots of my life mm -hmm. and it starts before birth, before his birth. And it goes all the way through um, his, his adult services, getting him into adult services. Um, so it's, and, and I almost threw it out twice, actually. <laughs> oh. And then and in the editing process, I thought I was just going to hand it over. And then I realized she goes, no, we're going to do a rewrite. And I, oh, no. So now I had to go, I had to go back and reread it. And every single time, and even today, can I tell you? Yeah. It still brings up emotion for me. Of course. And, and I'm, and I say to myself, why, why are you still getting emotional? You wrote this. Because I lived it. Yeah. It's truth and honesty. When I recorded my audible version, I cried so many times I had to keep <laughs> Like we had to keep stopping and I had to keep redoing certain chapters. I just, I mean, it brings it all back. Like it was yesterday and you think yeah. you're over it, but you're never really over it. It's just, you move on to the next thing and you just kind of dismiss it for a time, but yep. Yeah. No, you're not over it. And, mm -hmm. and that's what I say also about, you know, when they do finally move, move on and out into a residential setting. Mm hmm um, there's a void and I don't think you ever get over it. I think you learn to manage it. Yeah. You know? And just knowing that they're happy helps. Right? I, I was going to ask you that. I mean, I'm sure just typical mothers, the way we are not special needs children or not, uh, we beat ourselves up all the time about decisions or things. Did you, I mean, like you said, it took him two months to acclimate and it took you two years, but, um, are you okay now with your decision, knowing that he's thriving and that he's happy? And I'm sure your life is so much less chaotic that you did the right thing for both of you, that it was a choice that was probably really hard to make, but ultimately 
could you see your life any differently? Like, you know, that, that, that this isn't the best thing that your life now would be a lot more stressful probably if he was still in home and you were still doing what you were doing before. I think in so many ways it benefited him. And yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, it was the first time I was able to work when he went into re uh, the residential school. Yes. Uh-huh. Right. Um, but I will tell you that um, I don't regret my decision. It, it was the, the most difficult, but it was the best decision I've made. Mm -hmm. um, and, but there are still more to make. You know, he comes home for visits probably every five weeks, maybe six. Probably the hardest one was when we were in lockdown. You know, he yeah. Oh, yeah. He didn't come home for six months. He couldn't. Oh, gosh. And so um, I thought, what am I going to do? I can't talk to him on the phone. So I Skyped with him so he could just see my face. And um, he actually, I saw him. He, he looked to the side and he was going to look out the window to see if my car was there. Oh. <laughs> he must have thought I was in the computer. I don't know what he thought. <laughs> But uh, it was funny. But, you know, it was a five-minute, hi, how are you? Here's my face. I didn't abandon you. Yeah. Kind of call. But um, but now I'm at the age, you know, um, I'm older than you. I'm, I'll be 67 this summer. And um, Gosh, you don't look it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this autism hasn't aged you, at least. <laughs> I don't know about that. It feels like it's but, aged me, but... <laughs> But, um, you know, time is short. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, co-guardianship, who will fill my shoes when I'm gone? Yes. End of, end of life arrangements for him. Never mind myself. Um, these are things that nobody wants to think about. Right. But we have to plan. And, and. I think COVID for me bumped it up even more so. It was so random. Yeah. So um, it was scary. And yeah. And so these questions are hard questions, and but it's more planning, right? Mm -hmm. and yeah. Another transition. So so there's this constant flow in life, like everyone goes through, but. In addition to our own needs, we have to plan for those. Yeah. You know, in a way that most parents don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, we, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish what you were saying. No, I, I was just, we don't get to, you know, our job is to make sure that they're happy and safe and protected and, and supported and planned for. You know, um, while other parents are celebrating, you know, weddings and proms and retirement, <laughs> yeah. well, you can yeah. still retire. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, it just looks different. <laughs> but, um, you know, you get to a point where, uh, you know, so they're doing that, we're doing this. And you get to a point where, honestly, on my mind, 
it's not just the planning, it's how long can I still have him home for visits and be safe? Mm -hmm. He's over 200 pounds. He's head and shoulders above me. I'm five one, you know, he's twice my weight. Yeah. And what's, what's the reality of this? Mm -hmm. How many more years? Yeah. So it becomes, time becomes more valuable but it also becomes short. And I don't want to sound like a doom and gloom, but it's just, it's just that circle of life, right? Yeah. Well, and that's what I was going to say um, when I interrupted you. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, it's just that one of the reasons I like doing episodes like this, it's not, it's not to be negative or doom and gloom or to, you know, make anybody that has a five-year-olds go, Oh my gosh, you know, like, so I have to think about group homes and like end of life planning. No, that's not what we're saying at all. It's just, you, you know, there are various phases in your life and your child's life. And you know, by teen years, it, like if they're not totally trained, if they're not speaking yet or communicating in any way, um, that's about the time that I, you know, about 13 or so Skylar's severity level didn't really change that much. He was just bigger and older, but he was still navigating the world like a three or four-year-old. I know cognitively he is much higher than that. Um, he's pretty much age appropriate, but I don't, he doesn't show that he isn't able to show that. So it was important to me to move beyond just the trust that we started when he was little. Um, you know, the trust could be used for anything. So I think that's important to start when they're very young, um, just to have that nest egg. If they do go to college, you use it for that. Um, but at least you have something, but it's the, um, you know, just preparing for the guardianship and preparing our, uh, living will that we had to do and kind of trying to figure out who's going to take care of him after me. I don't want to burden my daughter with just that. So, you know, another parent that I talked to on the podcast suggested cousins, and I never really thought about that but we do have a couple cousins that are older than my kids that I think would be wonderful to, to care for my son if we're not here. So it's just thinking about all of those things. It's better to, like you said from the beginning about transitioning to a residential school or whatever, it's better to think about those things and have a plan and rather than have it hit you in a crisis mode and you're in panic and you're trying to figure out what you're gonna do, right? I mean, I'm sure um, <laughs> things are a little bit more chaotic when it happens to you and you don't get to really make some choices for yourself. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and you're pushed to the wall. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because even back in the day, I, I would say to the special needs director after Ian, you know, he was in his residential program and I was working in the school system. So that same special needs director was there that was helping me. And I said to her, you know, there really should be a welcome wagon for special needs parents. You know, maybe we could have like just a, a bunch of information that says to them, I know you're at the beginning, but here's some information. Here's some organizations. Um, you, might, you might go down this path. You might not, but just keep it, mm -hmm. take a look at it. And if you need it along the way, you'll have it. Mm -hmm. Nobody's done that. You know, 
there should be a welcome wagon. They should be giving us, there's, I mean, certainly there's no guidebook for yeah. autism, but at least how about, here's a path you might go down, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. You know, here's an organization you might want to connect with along the way. Yeah. Um, I had to find all those things on my own. I would have loved to have a packet given to me. And, and especially there's so many of us now, moms at different stages that have written books about our journey and they're all different too. So I'd volunteer to give a bunch of my books to welcome packets like that. And I'm sure other authors would too. I'm sure yours would be helpful in there as well. They can read them all and, you know, take a little piece from each one. It's just all about not feeling, I know geographically you're on an Island, but that you don't feel like you're on an Island with this because if it's one in 44 at this point, there are a heck of a lot more of us with a child on the spectrum than there are not. So, you know, we just need to find our people. And so if people can't connect with the severity level of our children, they can meet somebody through us um, that is more closer to their scenario and I'm happy to make acquaintances with people and do whatever I can. Cause I don't want anyone to feel like I did back in 2006, right. sitting by myself, yes. trying to figure yes. this out. And, and I'm sure this, you wrote the, your book, the same reason I wrote mine yep. or one of the reasons is that you let know, let people know they're not alone. Mm-hmm. They're not alone in this. Right. And, and for me, you know, I, I wanted them to know, number one, you always have a choice, right? No matter what. But number two, your voice matters. You need to speak your truth. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I know that often, especially, at least this has been my experience with special needs parents, our voices are often dismissed. And especially as women, right, in general, um, but keep speaking anyway. Yeah. Some, someone will hear you. And your child they needs you to. <laughs> they need you to advocate loud and proud for them as well. We have to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. We really do. Um, and so, because I know sometimes parents feel like, well, if I don't accept what's offered, he may not get anything. Or she right. May not get anything. Um, or I may get pushed back or my kid will get pushed back, won't be treated right. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's not a good place to make a decision from. Yep. You know, we need to, we need to learn to speak up more. Ask for what we need. Yep. I'm terrible at that. Asking for help. I'm getting better as I age, but yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of parents think they can do it alone and go it alone. Like, you know, I've got this or whatever, but it never hurts to have a helpful hand or somebody to give you some tips. And if it works for you, great. If it doesn't great, but at least, you know, <laughs> more than you knew five minutes ago. So that's kind I of the whole point. That, you know, for me, it always felt like I was doing it alone. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't doing it alone. Um, the school was helping me. Um, there were outside therapists that would come into the home. Um, I was scheduled to come in and work with them. They were helping me. So unbeknownst to me, I was, they were helping me along the way. Mm-hmm. You know, when I look back, 
um, I did have a lot of supports along the way um, to educate me, mm-hmm. to help me get, and it helped me get to the next step, maybe to ask the next question, mm-hmm. you know, but don't be afraid to ask. Absolutely. Well, I guess my big question is, did you ever hear back from Obama <laughs> I, <laughs> or his office? I did. <laughs> good. I, I asked, well, that's good. So I got a letter back from him. I was shocked. So I sent that in March mm-hmm. and, and then in June, I got the letter and um, it, I was just happy to get the letter. I mm-hmm. praised it. I was like so, so thrilled. And <laughs> But then two months later, I got a phone call. Oh, really? And I thought it was a telemarketer. You know? <laughs> he's, he's like, he's asking for my name. And is this, is, am I speaking to? And um, I thought, oh, geez, I'll give the guy a break. It turned out to be the lead guy on the president's uh, committee for uh, people with intellectual disabilities. Oh, my gosh. President Obama had asked him to follow up on the letter with me. Do you so think, he talked, did he ask you good questions? I mean, was he genuinely interested in how they can try to help? I mean, was, I know things take forever to make a change, but. He was wonderful. Um, you know, I thanked him for calling me. And, and I also, I told him, I said, you know, you're calling me and President Obama answering my letter, I said. You're validating me. Yeah. I've been heard. That's yeah, huge. It is huge. And um, and so we talked for about a half hour, you know, about autism and the need um, to care for them. And um, he said to me, well, I'm going to send you a, my email address. If you have any further questions, you can always email me. I was like, great. So that was in, I think, early August, or sometime in August. And by maybe the end of September, October, it was just chaos with my son and my boyfriend. Like, it's detailed in my book, but I, I can't even begin to tell you. Um, how many issues I had. Mm-hmm. I had documented everything. And I had already retained a lawyer. Gosh. Back in, the, back in the spring. And so by that time, I had all this documentation. And so I sent off an email. And um, I told them my situation. And, um, you know, um, we ended up having an eight-month conversation online, back and forth, and um, I think I think it was in the end of December that my son ended up having uh, an incident in a van where he was doing uh, self-injurious behavior mm-hmm. and hitting himself in the head. Well, he doesn't do this unless he's really upset. Um, and, um, so 
I, I told him about that and um, he, he addressed it and got me some help. That's awesome. Now, I assume he's no longer there because of Obama not being in office anymore. Is, there, is that a role that is filled by each cabinet that's in there, um, you know, with each president or do you, do you have any other contacts to the new person or the replacements or no? You know, I haven't tried. Yeah. Um, I haven't tried. Yeah. Luckily this all happened um, before that happened, right before that happened, the transition. Um, and um, it was like, a true blessing. I can't tell you, mm -hmm. but you know, and my story, you know, it's, it's different, but, um, and I'm not saying everybody should write a letter to the president. I think that maybe they should, <laughs> I think if enough of us well, did it, so, well, we could, we could mm -hmm. inundate. I mean, this is what we do with anything else. Right. But I'm, I'm not saying that's the answer. Right. Because I didn't, See, when I sent that letter to Obama, I didn't ask for help for, mm -hmm. for my son. He's wanted. I, asked, I wanted, I said, look, there's a growing population here. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do about it? You know? Yep. I didn't have an answer, but let's look at it, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I ended up getting help because of it. So, yeah. Well, it's moms like you, <laughs> like we said earlier too, doing the nonprofit, building the group homes, um, you know, writing to the president. Like it's, I mean, it's sad, but it takes, it takes that type of side dedication beyond what just our kids need to getting change to, to be happening. And I, I swear my last breath on this earth will be, you know, uttering like how excited I am about the major changes that all of us made happen because I, I I'm determined in my lifetime that there is going to be a noticeable difference in some of this stuff. I, I, that's my, that's my mission at this point. I just don't want other parents for generations to deal with what we've had to deal with. And I'm just on the early stages of it and you're, you know, ahead of me by a lot. So it's just, right. it's not fair, but it hasn't changed. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the sad the part. <laughs> the diagnosis so has evolved, but nothing else. And honestly, I could have just said, hooray for me and my son and walked away. Yeah. And, but I, I knew that I had to do something more than that, even mm -hmm. if it was just to share my story. Right. Yep. Um, but I think, I think, yeah, we need to keep this conversation going. We need to find a way to make something move, to make something change in the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know yeah. that there's so much out there on, uh, regarding autism nowadays. Um, there's no reason. There's no reason why something shouldn't be done or shouldn't mm -hmm. be changed. Um, just because this is the way it's always been done doesn't mean that it's working. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, well, you've given so many pearls already, but dare I ask you for, for one more, <laughs> like, um, you know, just, if you could speak to the parents who have, um, either young children or they're like middle school age, um, since you have so much experience with that age group, um, 
in addition to, you know, what you said about planning for the future and not really waiting until crisis mode, if, if that's something that can end up happening in your life, is there any other piece of advice or um, just hope that you found later looking back on things that you would tell parents about their child as they age with autism? I don't know that I have any magical advice. <laughs> I wish I did, but I think that, and most parents are probably already doing this, you know, just make sure you, you, you know, tap your resources, collect your information from your educators, um, from the therapists, from, um, the medical team, right? Um, put it all together, talk to other parents and, and then, you know, trust your gut. Mm -hmm. Go with your instincts because when it comes down to it, you are the expert. Absolutely. You know, everyone on the outside, yes, they have, may have a specialty but they are trained and educated in that area. You are trained and educated by your child. Mm -hmm. First-hand experience. That is valuable. You're the one who has all the insight, right? Yep. So do not, you know, disregard your own input. Mm -hmm. you know, take all that information and then how does, how does it fit with you, you know? But, but you know, do research. Contact Ask the questions, yep. Ask mm -hmm. questions. Get an advocate. I can't stress enough how important that is in the beginning. You know, they will run you through all the legal jargon, you know, of IEPs and whatever. Everybody, there's an acronym, I think, for everything. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And they could run rings around you with it and make your head spin. So um, get an advocate. And if you can't afford one, then try to find an organization where, you know, they train advocates and maybe someone will work pro bono. Yeah. Or a lot of them do here. Yeah, um, that, that's a lot you can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but but I, I even with that, I would just say, you know what, do that, but you know, stay the course, just begin. I know that's hard, sometimes that's the hardest, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, small moves, and don't try to think of everything at once if, if it's overwhelming. Take a step. Mm -hmm. you know, I know when I got the diagnosis of autism, I was living in New Jersey. Ian was three. I was in the middle of a divorce. And I was moving in two weeks <laughs> to move in with my parents with two kids and a dog. And I get this diagnosis. You're like, add it on. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know what this word means, but I said to myself, I will figure it out when I get there. 
Yep. Right now, I just know moving on to a safe place. And sometimes you just have to tell yourself, I'll figure it out tomorrow. Yep. I'm not going to worry about it right now. You know? There were many times in my house, I would think, I didn't know where, you know, my next meal was coming from. And I was like, tonight we eat. I'm making spaghetti and meatballs you know um I'm not gonna worry about it yeah think about it tomorrow yep so you're a phenomenal mama (laughs) you really are I mean your book is is so great and I I will link it up and how people can order it on Amazon um or your website um and your blogs are wonderful too I just I just cannot stress enough how grateful I am for, for moms and dads like you who have, who are further in the journey and are sharing the good, the bad, the hard, everything to help parents like us who are just behind you. Um, any feedback you can share, like I said, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's difficult to read, we all could be in those exact same shoes. So it's nice to know that we have somebody to relate to and to reach out to. Um, I know you're, you're out there and people can communicate with you, um, on your social media sites and just lots of ways to connect. And you're, I know you're willing to talk to anyone that has a question for you from your book or anything at all. So I will link all of that stuff up so that people can reach out to you. And I, I just am so appreciative of your time and you're sharing your life and your story with us. Well, that's what we're, I mean, that's what we all do, right? That's why we're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, support each other. Right? Absolutely. Yep. So, that's why I love doing this. Yeah. <laughs> I get to meet yeah, amazing I, people. Yeah, <laughs> I know. When, when I heard a couple of your episodes, I was like, just nodding my head and saying out loud, yes, I get it. You know, <laughs> Me too, you're, right? <laughs> you're speaking my language. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and more of that. Yeah. So thank you for doing this podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you being a guest and um, take care. And I will, like I said, link up your book. It's called Choices. And um, I highly recommend everyone read it. It's a wonderful read. Thank you, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Living the Sky Life and we'll tune in for the next episode coming soon. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Living the Sky Life podcast within Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, so you'll receive alerts when new episodes are released. Subscribing is the best way to ensure you don't miss a single episode. If you like what you hear, be sure to select the five-star rating, provide feedback, and share Living the Sky Life with others. Thanks again for listening.